0: Chapter forty nine of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty nine. In which Mrs. Harris, assisted by a teapot, is the cause of a division between friends. Mrs. Gamp's apartment in Kingsgate Street, High Holborn, wore, metaphorically speaking, a robe of state. It was swept and garnished for the reception of a visitor. That visitor was Betsy Prigg. Mrs. Prigg of Bartlemy's, or, as some said Barclamese, or, as some said Bardlemys for by all these endearing and familiar appellations had the hospital of St. Bartholomew become a household word among the sisterhood which Betsy Prigg adorned. Mrs. Gamp's apartment was not a spacious one, but to a contented mind a closet is a palace, and the first floor front at Mr. Sweetlepipes may have been, in the imagination of Mrs. Gamp, a stately pile. If it were not exactly that to restless intellects, It at least comprised as much accommodation as any person, not sanguine to insanity, could have looked for in a room of its dimensions. For only keep the bedstead always in your mind, and you were safe. That was the grand secret. Remembering the bedstead, you might even stoop to look under the little round table for anything you had dropped, without hurting yourself much against the chest of drawers, or qualifying as a patient of St. Bartholomew by falling into the fire." Visitors were much assisted in their cautious efforts to preserve an unflagging recollection of this piece of furniture by its size, which was great. It was not a turn-up bedstead, nor yet a French bedstead, nor yet a four-post bedstead, but what is poetically called a tent. The sacking whereof was low and bulgy, insomuch that Mrs. Gamp's box would not go under it, but stopped half-way in a manner which, while it did violence to the reason, likewise endangered the legs of a stranger. The frame, too, which would have supported the canopy and hangings, if there had been any, was ornamented with diverse pippins carved in timber, which on the slightest provocation, and frequently on none at all, came tumbling down, harassing the peaceful guest with inexplicable terrors. The bed itself was decorated with a patchwork quilt of great antiquity, and at the upper end, upon the side nearest to the door, hung a scanty curtain of blue check which prevented the zephyrs that were abroad in Kingsgate Street from visiting Mrs. Gamp's head too roughly. Some rusty gowns and other articles of that lady's wardrobe depended from the posts, and these had so adapted themselves by long usage to her figure that more than one impatient husband coming in precipitately at about the time of twilight had been for an instant stricken dumb by the supposed discovery that Mrs. Gamp had hanged herself. One gentleman, coming on the usual hasty errand, had said, indeed, that they looked like guardian angels watching of her in her sleep. But that, as Mrs. Gamp said, was his first, and he never repeated the sentiment, though he often repeated his visit. The chairs in Mrs. Gamp's apartment were extremely large and broad-backed, which was more than a sufficient reason for their being but two in number. They were both elbow-chairs of ancient mahogany, and were chiefly valuable for the slippery nature of their seats, which had been originally horsehair, but were now covered with a shiny substance of a bluish tint, from which the visitor began to slide away with a dismayed countenance, immediately after sitting down. What Mrs. Gamp wanted in chairs she made up in band-boxes, of which she had a great collection, devoted to the reception of various miscellaneous valuables— which were not, however, as well protected as the good woman, by a pleasant fiction, seemed to think. For though every band-box had a carefully closed lid, not one among them had a bottom, owing to which cause the property within was merely, as it were, extinguished. The chest of drawers, having been originally made to stand upon the top of another chest, had a dwarfish, elfin look alone, but in regard of its security it had a great advantage over the bandboxes for as all the handles had been long ago pulled off, it was very difficult to get at its contents. This, indeed, was only to be done by one or two devices, either by tilting the whole structure forward until all the drawers fell out together, or by opening them singly with knives, like oysters. Mrs. Gamp stored all her household matters in a little cupboard by the fireplace, beginning below the surface, as in nature, with the coals, and mounting gradually upwards to the spirits, which, from motives of delicacy, she kept in a teapot. The chimney-piece was ornamented with a small almanac, marked here and there in Mrs. Gamp's own hand, with a memorandum of the date at which some lady was expected to fall due. It was also embellished with three profiles—one in colours of Mrs. Gamp herself in early life, one in bronze of a lady in feathers supposed to be Mrs. Harris, as she appeared when dressed for a ball, and one in black of Mr. Gamp, deceased. The last was a full length, in order that the likeness might be rendered more obvious and forcible by the introduction of the wooden leg. A pair of bellows, a pair of pattens, a toasting-fork, a kettle, a pat-boat, a spoon for the administration of medicine to the refractory, And, lastly, Mrs. Gamp's umbrella, which, as something of great price and rarity, was displayed with particular ostentation, completed the decorations of the chimney-piece and adjacent wall. Towards these objects, Mrs. Gamp raised her eyes in satisfaction when she had arranged the tea-board, and had concluded her arrangements for the reception of Betsy Prigg, even under the setting forth of two pounds of Newcastle salmon, intensely pickled— "'There, now drat you, Betsy, don't be long,' said Mrs. Gamp, apostrophising her absent friend. "'For I can't a-bear to wait, I do assure you. "'To whatever place I goes, I sticks to this one mortar. "'I'm easy pleased. It is but little as I wants. "'But I must have that little of the best, and to the minute when the clock strikes, "'else we do not part as I could wish, but bearin malice in our arts.' "'Her own preparations were of the best, for they comprehended a delicate new loaf,' a plate of fresh butter, a basin of fine white sugar, and other arrangements on the same scale. Even the snuff, with which she now refreshed herself, was so choice in quality that she took a second pinch. "'There's the little bell a-ringing now,' said Mrs. Gamp, hurrying to the stairhead and looking over. "'Betsy prig might—' "'Why, it's that they're dissipating sweetle-pipes, I do believe.' "'Yes, it's me,' said the barber in a faint voice. "'I've just come in.' "'You're always a-comin' in, I think,' muttered Mrs. Gamp to herself, "'except when you're a-goin' out. "'I hain't no patience with that man.' "'Mrs. Gamp,' said the barber, "'I say, Mrs. Gamp.' "'Well,' cried Mrs. Gamp impatiently, as she descended the stairs, "'what is it? Is the Thames afire and cookin' its own fish, Mr. Sweetlepipes? "'Why, what's the man gone and been a-doin' of to himself? "'He's as white as chalk. She added the latter clause of inquiry when she got downstairs and found him seated in the shaving chair, pale and disconsolate. "'You recollect?' said Paul. "'You recollect young—' "'Not young Wilkins!' cried Mrs. Gamp. "'Don't say young Wilkins whatever you do. "'If young Wilkins's wife is took—' "'It isn't anybody's wife!' exclaimed the little barber. "'Bailey! Young Bailey!' "'Why, what do you mean to say that chit's been a-doin' of?' "'retorted Mrs. Gamp sharply. "'Stuff and nonsense, Mrs. Sweetlepipes!' "'He hasn't been a-doing anything!' exclaimed poor Paul, quite desperate. "'What do you catch me up so short for "'when you see me put out to that extent that I can hardly speak? "'He'll never do anything again. He's done for. He's killed.' "'The first time I ever see that boy,' said Paul, "'I charged him too much for a red Paul. "'I asked him 3 halfpence for a penny one "'because I was afraid he'd beat me down.' But he didn't. And now he's dead. And if he was to crowd all the steam-engines and electric fluids that ever was into this shop and set em every one to work their hardest, they couldn't square the account, though it's only a haypenny. Mr. Sweetlepipe turned aside to the towel and wiped his eyes with it. And what a clever boy he was, he said. What a surprising young chap he was. How he talked, and what a deal he knowed. Shaved in this very chair he was, only for fun. It was all his fun, he was full of it. Ah, to think that he'll never be shaved in earnest! The birds might every one have died and welcome, cried the little barber, looking round him at the cages and again applying to the towel, sooner than I'd have heard this news. How did you ever come to hear it? said missus Gamp, who told you? I went out, returned the little barber. "'into the city to meet a sporting gent upon the stock exchange "'that wanted a few slow pigeons to practice at. "'And when I'd done with him, I went to get a little drop of beer, "'and there I heard everybody a-talking about it. "'It's in the papers.' "'You are in a nice state of confusion, Mr. Sweetlepipes. "'You are,' said Mrs. Gamp, shaking her head. "'And my opinion is, as half a dozen free young lively leeches on your temples "'wouldn't be too much to clear your mind. "'Which, so I tell you, "'What were they a talking on, and what was in the papers?' "'All about it,' cried the barber. "'What else do you suppose?' "'Him and his master were upset on a journey, "'and he was carried to Salisbury, "'and was breathing his last when the account came away. "'He never spoke afterwards, not a single word. "'That's the worst of it to me. "'But that ain't all. "'His master can't be found. "'The other manager of their office in the city, "'Crimple, David Crimple, has gone off with the money,' and is advertised for with a reward upon the walls. Mr. Montague, poor young Bailey's master—what a boy he was!—is advertised for, too. Some say he's slipped off to join his friend abroad. Some say he mayn't have got away yet, and they're looking for him high and low. Their office is a smash, a swindle altogether. But what's a life-assurance office to a life? And what a life young Bailey's was! He was born into a whale, said Mrs. Gamp with philosophical coolness, and he lived in a whale, and he must take the consequences of such a situation. But don't you hear nothing of Mr. Chuzzlewit in all this?' "'No,' said Paul, "'nothing to speak of. His name wasn't printed as one of the board, though some people say it was just going to be. Some believe he was took in, and some believe he was one of the takers in. But however that may be, they can't prove nothing against him. This morning he went up of his own accord afore the Lord Mayor, or— "'some of them city bigwigs, and complained that he'd been swindled, "'and that these two persons had gone off and cheated him, "'and that he had just found out that Montague's name wasn't even Montague, "'but something else, and they do say that he looked like death, owing to his losses. "'But, Lord, forgive me,' cried the barber, "'coming back again to the subject of his individual grief. "'What's his looks to me? "'He might have died and welcomed fifty times, and not been such a loss as Bailey.' At this juncture the little bell rang, and the deep voice of Mrs. Prigg struck into the conversation. "'Oh, you're a-talkin' about it, are you?' observed that lady. "'Well, I hope you've got it over, for I ain't interested in it myself.' "'My precious Betsy,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'how late you are!' The worthy Mrs. Prigg replied, with some asperity, that if perverse people went off dead when they was least expected, it warn't no fault of hern, and further that it was quite aggravation enough to be made late when one was dropping for one's tea without hearing on it again. Mrs. Gamp, deriving from this exhibition of repartee some clue to the state of Mrs. Prigg's feelings, instantly conducted her upstairs, deeming that the sight of pickled salmon might work a softening change. But Betsy Prigg expected pickled salmon. It was obvious that she did, for her first words after glancing at the table were— "'I knowed she wouldn't have a cowcumber.' Mrs. Gamp changed colour and sat down upon the bedstead. "'Lord bless you, Betsy Prig! your words is true. I quite forgot it.' Mrs. Prigg, looking steadfastly at her friend, put her hand in her pocket, and with an air of surly triumph drew forth, either the oldest of lettuces or youngest of cabbages, but at any rate a green vegetable of an expansive nature, and of such magnificent proportions that she was obliged to shut it up like an umbrella before she could pull it out. She also produced a handful of mustard and cress, a trifle of the herb called dandelion, three bunches of radishes, an onion rather larger than an average turnip, three substantial slices of beetroot, and a short prong or antler of celery— the whole of this garden stuff having been publicly exhibited but a short time before as a twopenny salad and purchased by mrs prig on condition that the vendor could get it all into her pocket which had been happily accomplished in high holborn to the breathless interest of a hackney coach-stand and she laid so little stress on this surprising forethought that she did not even smile but returning her pocket into its accustomed sphere merely recommended that these productions of nature should be sliced up for immediate consumption, and plenty of vinegar. "'And don't go a of none of your snuff in it,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'in gruel, barley-water, apple-tea, mutton-broth, and that it don't signify. It stimulates a patient, but I don't relish it myself.' "'Why, Betsy Prigg,' cried Mrs. Gamp, "'how can you talk so?' "'Why, ain't your patients, whatever their diseases is, "'always a-sneezing their weary heads off along of your snuff,' said Mrs. Prigg. "'And what if they are?' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Nothing if they are,' said Mrs. Prigg. "'But don't deny it, Sarah.' "'Who denies of it?' Mrs. Gamp inquired. Mrs. Prigg returned no answer. "'Who denies of it, Betsy?' Mrs. Gamp inquired again. Then Mrs. Gamp, by reversing the question, imparted a deeper and more awful character of solemnity to the same. "'Betsy, who denies of it?' It was the nearest possible approach to a very decided difference of opinion between these ladies— But Mrs. Prigg's impatience for the meal, being greater at the moment than her impatience of contradiction, she replied for the present, "'Nobody, if you don't, Sarah,' and prepared herself for tea. For a quarrel can be taken up at any time, but a limited quantity of salmon cannot. Her toilette was simple. She had merely to chuck her bonnet and shawl upon the bed, give her hair two pulls, one upon the right side and one upon the left, as if she were ringing a couple of bells, and all was done. The tea was already made, Mrs. Gamp was not long over the salad, and they were soon at the height of their repast. The temper of both parties was improved, for the time being, by the enjoyments of the table. When the meal came to a termination, which it was pretty long in doing, and Mrs. Gamp having cleared away, produced the teapot from the top shelf, simultaneously with a couple of wine-glasses, they were quite amiable. "'Betsy,' said Mrs. Gamp, filling her own glass and passing the teapot, "'I will now propose a toast. "'My frequent partner, Betsy Prigg.' "'Which, altering the name to Sarah Gamp, I drink,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'with love and tenderness.' "'From this moment symptoms of inflammation began to lurk in the nose of each lady, "'and perhaps, notwithstanding all appearances to the contrary, in the temper also. "'Now Sarah,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'Joining business with pleasure, what is this case in which she wants me?' Mrs. Gamp, betraying in her face some intention of returning an evasive answer, Betsy added, "'Is it, Mrs. Harris?' "'No, Betsy Prig, it ain't,' was Mrs. Gamp's reply. "'Well,' said Mrs. Prigg, with a short laugh, "'I'm glad of that, at any rate.' "'Why should you be glad of that, Betsy?' Mrs. Gamp retorted warmly. "'She is unbeknownst to you, except by hearsay. Why should you be glad?' "'If you have anything to say, contrary to the character of Mrs. Harris, "'which, well, I knows, behind her back, afore her face or anywheres, "'is not to be impeached, out with it, Betsy. "'I'd have knowed that, sweetest and best of women,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'shaking her head and shedding tears, ever since afore her first, "'which Mr. Harris, who was dreadful timid, went and stopped his ears in an empty dog-kennel, "'and never took his hands away or come out once till he was showed the baby,' "'When being took what fits, the doctor collared him, "'and laid him on his back upon the airy stones, "'and she was told to ease her mind, his owls was organs, "'and I have knowed her, Betsy Prigg, "'when he has heard her feelin' art by sayin' of his night "'that it was one too many, if not two, "'while that dear innocent was cooin' in his face, "'which thrive it did, though, bandy. "'But I've never knowed, as you had occasion to be glad, Betsy, "'on accounts of Mrs. Harris not requiring you.' "'Require she never will. Depend upon it. "'For her constant words in sickness is and will be. Send for Sari.' During this touching address, Mrs. Prigg, adroitly feigning to be the victim of that absence of mind which has its origin in excessive attention to one topic, helped herself from the teapot without appearing to observe it. Mrs. Gamp observed it, however, and came to a premature close in consequence. "'Well, it ain't her, it seems,' said Mrs. Prigg coldly. "'Who is it, then?' You have heerd me mention, Betsy. Missus Gamp replied, after glancing in an expressive and marked manner at the teapot. A person as I took care on at the time as you and me was pardners off and on in that their fever at the bull. Old Snuffy, Missus Prig observed. Sarah Gamp looked at her with an eye of fire, for she saw in this mistake of Mrs. Prigg another wilful and malignant stab at that same weakness or custom of hers, an ungenerous allusion to which, on the part of Betsy, had first disturbed their harmony that evening. And she saw it still more clearly when, politely but firmly correcting that lady, by the distinct enunciation of the word chuffy, Mrs. Prigg received the correction with a diabolical laugh. The best among us have their feelings, and it must be conceded of Mrs. Prigg that if there were a blemish in the goodness of her disposition, it was a habit she had of not bestowing all its sharp and acid properties upon her patients, as a thoroughly amiable woman would have done, but of keeping a considerable remainder for the service of her friends. Highly pickled salmon and lettuces chopped up in vinegar may, as viands possessing some acidity of their own, have encouraged and increased this failing in Mrs. Prigg, and every application to the teapot certainly did, for it was often remarked of her by her friends that she was most contradictory when most elevated. It is certain that her countenance became about this time derisive and defiant, and that she sat with her arms folded and one eye shut up in a somewhat offensive, because obtrusively intelligent, manner. Mrs. Gamp, observing this, felt it the more necessary that Mrs. Prigg should know her place and be made sensible of her exact station in society as well as of her obligations to herself. She therefore assumed an air of greater patronage and importance, as she went on to answer Mrs. Prigg a little more in detail. "'Mr. Chuffy, Betsy,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'is weak in his mind. "'Excuse me if I makes remark "'that he may neither be so weak as people thinks, nor people may not think he is so weak as they pretends, and what I knows, I knows, and what you don't, you don't. So do not ask me, Betsy. But Mr. Chuffey's friends has made proposals for his bein took care on, and has said to me, Mrs. Gamp, will you undertake it? We couldn't think, they says, of trusting him to nobody but you, for, Sary, you are gold, as has passed the furnage. Will you undertake it at your own price, day and night, and by your own self?' "'No,' I says, "'I will not. Do not reckon on it.' "'There is,' I says, "'but one creature in the world as I would undertake on such terms, and her name is Harris. "'But,' I says, "'I am acquainted with a friend whose name is Betsy Prigg that I can recommend and will assist me. "'Betsy,' I says, "'is always to be trusted under me, and will be guided as I could desire.' Here, Mrs. Prig, without any abatement of her offensive manner, again counterfeited abstraction of mind and stretched out her hand to the teapot. It was more than Mrs. Gamp could bear. She stopped the hand of Mrs. Prigg with her own and said, with great feeling, "'No, Betsy, drink fair whatever you do.' Mrs. Prigg, thus baffled, threw herself back in her chair, and closing the same eye more emphatically and folding her arms tighter, "'suffered her head to roll slowly from side to side "'while she surveyed her friend with a contemptuous smile. "'Mrs. Gamp resumed. "'Mrs. Harris, Betsy! "'Bother Mrs. Harris,' said Betsy Prigg. "'Mrs. Gamp looked at her with amazement, incredulity, and indignation, "'when Mrs. Prigg, shutting her eyes still closer "'and folding her arms still tighter, "'uttered these memorable and tremendous words.' "'I don't believe there's no sich a person.' After the utterance of which expressions, she leaned forward and snapped her fingers once, twice, thrice, each time nearer to the face of Mrs. Gamp, and then rose to put on her bonnet as one who felt that there was now a gulf between them which nothing could ever bridge across. The shock of this blow was so violent and sudden that Mrs. Gamp sat staring at nothing with uplifted eyes, and her mouth open as if she were gasping for breath— until Betsy Prig had put on her bonnet and her shawl, and was gathering the latter about her throat. Then Mrs. Gamp rose, morally and physically rose, and denounced her. "'What?' said Mrs. Gamp. "'You bage creeter! "'Have I knowed Mrs. Harris five and thirty year, to be told at last that there ain't no such a person living? "'Have I stood her friend in all her troubles, great and small, for it to come at last to such an end as this?' with her own sweet picture hanging up before you all the time, to shame your braggy and words, but, well, you mayn't believe there's no such a creetur for she wouldn't demean herself to look at you. And often has she said, when I have made mention of your name, which, to my sinful sorrow, I have done, What, Sary Gamp? Debade yourself to her? Go along with you. I'm a-going, ma'am, ain't I? said Mrs. Prigg, stopping as she said it. You had better, ma'am, said Mrs. Gamp. "'Do you know who you're talking to, ma'am?' inquired her visitor. "'Apparently,' said Mrs. Gamp, surveying her with scorn from head to foot, "'to Betsy Prigg. Apparently so. I know her, no one better. Go along with you.' "'And you was a-goin' to take me under you,' cried Mrs. Prigg, surveying Mrs. Gamp from head to foot in her turn. "'You was, was you?' "'Oh, how kind! Why, deuce take your imprints!' said Mrs. Prigg, with a rapid change from banter to ferocity. "'What do you mean?' "'Go along with you,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'I blush for you.' "'You had better blush a little for yourself while you are about it,' said Mrs. Prigg. "'You and your chuffies! What, the poor old creetur isn't mad enough, isn't he? Aha. "'He'd very soon be mad enough if you had anything to do with him,' said Mrs. Gamp." "'And that's what I was wanted for, is it?' cried Mrs. Prigg, triumphantly. "'Yes. But you'll find yourself deceived. I won't go near him. "'We shall see how you get on without me. I won't have nothing to do with him.' "'You never spoke a truer word than that,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Go along with you.' She was prevented from witnessing the actual retirement of Mrs. Prigg from the room, notwithstanding the great desire she had expressed to behold it, by that lady, in her angry withdrawal— coming into contact with the bedstead, and bringing down the previously mentioned Pippins, three or four of which came rattling on the head of Mrs. Gamp so smartly that when she recovered from this wooden shower-bath, Mrs. Prigg was gone. She had the satisfaction, however, of hearing the deep voice of Betsy proclaiming her injuries and her determination to have nothing to do with Mr. Chuffey down the stairs and along the passage and even out in Kingsgate Street likewise of seeing in her own apartment, in the place of Mrs. Prigg, Mr. Sweetlepipe and two gentlemen. "'Why, bless my life!' exclaimed the little barber. "'What's amiss? The noise you ladies have been making, Mrs. Gamp! Why, these two gentlemen have been standing on the stairs outside the door nearly all the time, trying to make you hear while you were pelting away hammer and tongs. It'll be the death of the little bullfinch in the shop that draws his own water.' In his fright he's been straining himself all to bits, drawing more water than he could drink in a twelve-month. He must have thought it was fire. Mrs. Gamp had, in the meanwhile, sunk into her chair, from whence, turning up her overflowing eyes and clasping her hands, she delivered the following lamentation. "'Oh, Mr. Sweetlepipes, which Mr. Westlock also, if my eyes do not deceive, and a friend, not having the pleasure of being known." "'What I have took from Betsy Prig this blessed night, no mordial creetur knows. "'If she had abuged me, being in liquor, which I thought I smelt her when she come, "'but could not so believe, not being used myself—' "'Mrs. Gamp, by the way, was pretty far gone, and the fragrance of the teapot was strong in the room. "'I could have bore it with a thankful art, but the words she spoke of Mrs. Harris lambs could not forgive.' "'No, Betsy,' said Mrs. Gamp, in a violent burst of feeling, "'nor worms forget.' The little barber scratched his head and shook it, and looked at the teapot, and gradually got out of the room. John Westlock, taking a chair, sat down on one side of Mrs. Gamp. Martin, taking the foot of the bed, supported her on the other. "'You wonder what we want, I dare say,' observed John. "'I'll tell you presently when you have recovered. "'It's not pressing for a few minutes or so.' "'How do you find yourself? Better?' Mrs. Gamp shed more tears, shook her head, and feebly pronounced Mrs. Harris's name. "'Have a little—' John was at a loss what to call it. "'Tea?' suggested Martin. "'It ain't tea,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Physic of some sort, I suppose,' cried John. "'Have a little.' Mrs. Gamp was prevailed upon to take a glassful— "'On condition,' she passionately observed, "'as Betsy never has another stroke of work from me.' "'Certainly not,' said John. "'She shall never help to nurse me.' "'To think,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'as she should ever have helped to nuss that friend of yours "'and been so near of hearing things that—' "'Ah!' John looked at Martin. "'Yes,' he said, "'that was a narrow escape, Mrs. Gamp. Narrow indeed,' she returned. "'It was only my having the night—' And hearin' of him in his wanderin's, and her the day that saved it. What would she have said and done if she had knowed what I know, that perfidious wretch? Yet, oh, good gracious me, cried Mrs. Gamp, trampling on the floor in the absence of Mrs. Prigg, that I should hear from that same woman's lips what I have heard her speak of Mrs. Harris. Never mind, said John, you know it is not true. Isn't true? cried Mrs. Gamp. True "'Don't I know, as that dear woman is expecting of me at this minute, Mr. Westlock, "'and is a-looking out of window, down the street, "'with little Tommy Harris in her arms, as calls me his own gammy, "'and truly calls, for bless the mottled little legs of that there precious child, "'like Canterbury Brawn his own dear father says, which so they are. "'His own I have been, ever since I found him, Mr. Westlock, "'with his small red-worsted shoe a-gurgling in its throat, "'where he had put it in his play, a chick.' Well, they was leaving of him on the floor, a lookin' for it through the house, and him a chokin' sweetly in the parlour. Oh, Betsy Prig, what wickedness you've showed this night! But never shall you darken Sarah's doors again, you twining serpient! You were always so kind to her, too, said John, consolingly. That's the cutting part. That's where it hurts me, Mr. Westlock, Mrs. Gamp replied, holding out her glass unconsciously while Martin filled it. "'Chosen to help you with Mr. Loosome,' said John. "'Chosen to help you with Mr. Chuffy.' "'Chose once, but chose no more,' cried Mrs. Gamp. "'No partnership with Betsy Prig again, sir.' "'No, no,' said John. "'That would never do.' "'I don't know as it ever would have done, sir,' Mrs. Gamp replied, with a solemnity peculiar to a certain stage of intoxication. "'Now that the marks—by which Mrs. Gamp is supposed to have meant mask— is off that creeter's face I do not think it ever would have done. "'There are regions in families for keeping things a secret, Mr. Westlock, and having only them about as you knows you can repogin in. Who could repogin in Betsy Prigg?' or to her words of Mrs. Harris settin in that chair afore my eyes. "'Quite true,' said John. "'Quite. I hope you have time to find another assistant, Mrs. Gamp.' Between her indignation and the teapot, her powers of comprehending what was said to her began to fail. She looked at John with tearful eyes, and murmuring the well-remembered name which Mrs. Prigg had challenged, as if it were a talisman against all earthly sorrows, seemed to wander in her mind. "'I hope,' repeated John, "'that you have time to find another assistant?' "'Which short it is, indeed!' cried Mrs. Gamp, turning up her languid eyes, and clasping Mr. Westlock's wrist with matronly affection. "'Tomorrow evening, sir, I waits upon his friends. Mr. Chuzzlewit a have at it from nine to ten. "'From nine to ten,' said John, with a significant glance at Martin. "'And then Mr. Chuffey retires into safe-keeping, does he?' "'He needs to be kept safe, I do assure you,' Mrs. Gamp replied, with a mysterious air." "'Other people besides me has had a happy deliverance from Betsy Prigg. "'I little knowed that woman. She'd have let it out.' "'Let him out, do you mean?' said John. "'Do I?' retorted Mrs. Gamp. "'Oh!' The severely ironical character of this reply was strengthened by a very slow nod, and a still slower drawing down of the corners of Mrs. Gamp's mouth. She added, with extreme stateliness of manner, after indulging in a short doze, "'But I am a keepin' of you gentlemen, and time is precious.' Mingling with that delusion of the teapot which inspired her with the belief that they wanted her to go somewhere immediately, a shrewd avoidance of any further reference to the topics into which she had lately strayed, Mrs. Gamp rose, and putting away the teapot in its accustomed place, and locking the cupboard with much gravity, proceeded to attire herself for a professional visit. This preparation was easily made, as it required nothing more than the snuffy black bonnet, the snuffy black shawl, the patents, and the indispensable umbrella, without which neither a lying in nor a laying out could by any possibility be attempted. When Mrs. Gamp had invested herself with these appendages, she returned to her chair, and, sitting down again, declared herself quite ready. "'It's a happiness to know as one can benefit the poor sweet creter,' she observed. "'I'm sure—' IT ISN'T ALL AS CAN THE TORTERS BETSY PRIG INFLICTS is FRIGHTFUL. Closing her eyes as she made this remark, in the acuteness of her commiseration for Betsy's patience, she forgot to open them again, until she dropped a patent. Her nap was also broken at intervals, like the fabled slumbers of Friar Bacon, by the dropping of the other patent, and of the umbrella. But when she had got rid of those encumbrances, her sleep was peaceful. The two young men looked at each other, ludicrously enough, and Martin, stifling his disposition to laugh, whispered in John Westlock's ear, "'What shall we do now?' "'Stay here,' he replied. Mrs. Gamp was heard to murmur, "'Mrs. Harris,' in her sleep. "'Rely upon it,' whispered John, looking cautiously towards her, "'that you shall question this old clerk, though you go as Mrs. Harris herself.' We know quite enough to carry her our own way now, at all events, thanks to this quarrel, which confirms the old saying that when rogues fall out, honest people get what they want. Let Jonas Chuzzlewit look to himself, and let her sleep as long as she likes. We shall gain our end in good time. End of chapter 49